morning, church. So glad that you are here to worship with us. If you have a Bible, would you grab it and open up to Exodus? If you're new, I want to say welcome. So glad that you're here. Uh, We are journeying through the book of Exodus, and we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 25 here this morning, and that song is perfect. Our God is great. He's uh, clothed in majesty. He wraps himself in light, and all these wonderful themes that we just sang about, we're going to see Um, in detail here in the text that we have for us this morning. I'm going to challenge you, though, as we jump in. This is, we're getting into the section that is uh, full of all of these little details about the building of the tabernacle. And I'm going to challenge you not to just sort of glaze over because there's going to be lots of cubits and lots of uh, measurements and lots of little uh, things encased and made of gold, like specific instruction of how the tabernacle is to be built. Michael did a great job. He started us off last week as we uh, are moving into the third act of Exodus, we're calling this sort of new movement as God is dwelling with his people. So this is so important, this is so vital because uh, all the things that we just sang about, the goodness of Jesus, the nearness of Jesus, that he's come to save, that he's rescued us, that he's uh, purchased us and bought us with a price, uh, we see in these very words in Exodus all those years ago of God coming down and his desire is to dwell with his people. So Don't glaze over, I'm going to read these, and we see some incredible gospel parallels and some gospel truths here in Exodus 25. We'll be in verses 23 through 40. If you don't have a Bible, we've got free Bibles on that back table. Please take one and grab one uh, and make it your own and write in it and keep it. It is um, a great treasure that you will have. Exodus 25, um, verses 23 through 40. As we continue in the instruction of the building of the tabernacle. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length. A cubit its breadth. A cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold. And make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it. A hand breadth wide. And a molding of gold around the rim. You shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners of it at its four legs. Close to the frame of the rings shall lie as holders the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work, its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side, and three branches out of the lampstand of the other side of it, three cups made like almonds, made like almond blossoms, each with a calyx and a flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with a calyx and a flower on the other branch. 
So for the sixth branch going out of the lampstand, and on the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms, and with their calyx and flowers and a calyx of one piece, with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand, their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it. The whole of it, a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it. And the lamps shall be set up to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all of these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown to you on the mountain. We did it. Lots of detail there, right? Lots of cubits, lots of rings, lots of calyxes, lots of flagons, lots of words that we don't use, right? Although I'm going to make the case that we should start calling our cups flagons again, because that's just a really cool word that I think we need to uh, uh, bring back into our vernacular. But we're continuing in Exodus as we see God giving Moses these detailed, very specific instructions for building this tabernacle and all the furniture and all the details, how it's to be made, what it's to be made of, these very specific, almost minutia, detailed instructions with everything, right down to the tongs and the bowls to be set there and the cups to be put there and the table legs and the poles to be carried. I mean, I can't emphasize enough the amount of detail that's given here in this instruction. And if you're anything like me, um, you've managed to be with us all the way through this journey through Exodus. You've heard all these details. You've got through uh, the laws. You've got through all of the, all the civil sort of identity things as the people of God as we've been getting through it. And now we're here in this section as we're given these instructions to build the tabernacle. Please don't glaze over this part. There's even commentaries on my shelf that I went as I was studying for this. They, they like kind of glaze over this in like two sentences and they just want to get to the golden calf and get to the more exciting stuff because uh, these can feel a little bit like, well, what's going on here? These are like directions for building stuff. We don't, we don't need to know about any of these things. I want to implore you, church, these are so important. Uh, these are so important. These are why we are walking through verse by verse through this because it's God's word. It's living and active and everything here for us, in fact, points us ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ and his majesty that we just sang about. So please don't glaze over these. Resist that temptation because we're going to see so much rich gospel symbolism here. Now, as I was kind of reading this and I was, I was pondering this and thinking on this, the tabernacle and all this sacred furniture and all these details and all these beautiful things that are spelled out for us in rich detail, is, it's sort of like one of those pop-up books you read as a kid. Or maybe you read them to your child right now. Anyone remember the pop-up book? 
Okay, three of us do. Good. So y'all, y'all are tracking with me. The pop-up books, when you're a kid, you sort of open them up and you turn the page and this whole like thing comes to life in 3D, right? You turn the next page and this whole structure is sort of built so that you can sort of see into the story and see all the detail of what the author is trying to get across and trying to describe. Well, the, the descriptions here in Exodus 25 that God gives to us in his word as he's describing the tabernacle is like a pop-up book for us. He's giving us this three-dimensional, this, this, this beautiful visual, visual of the tabernacle of God, where God will dwell with his people. It's this three-dimensional storyline that's helping us bridge the story of redemption of God's people and how God longs to interact with us. And so every sacred piece of furniture, we're given the scale, we're given the size, we're given the visual, we're given an understanding of it. We can, we can imagine it in detail because all the details are spelled out for us so specifically and so beautifully. And so all of these things come into view for us. They're not just glazed over in God's word, so we don't want to glaze over them here. They're important. They're meaningful. And they point us to something spectacular. And as we see each one of these pieces, as we see each piece of the tabernacle being described in detail, the storyline of his saving grace for sinners in desperate need of rescue begins to come into focus. And ultimately it points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he becomes clear. So we're going to look at uh, Exodus 25, the second part uh, this morning. I want to introduce it real quick before we jump into the verses I'm going to be in. Uh, Michael did a great job last week of unpacking uh, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seats, and all of those things. But I want, to, I want to just use as an introductory one verse to sort of ground us in our understanding of what it is that God is trying uh, to help us understand here this morning. So in verses 3 through 7, we have uh, another list of materials, but I want us to look at verse 8. I'm just going to read it for us. I don't think it's going to be on the screen. It's a stunning statement in verse 8, Exodus 25, verse 8. If you have a Bible and you have a pen, underline this. Don't let this zip past you and let this sort of undergird our understanding of all these details that come forth after after God gives Moses verse 8. Let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst, that I may dwell in their midst, that I may dwell in their midst. That's incredible. You you remember these people saved out of slavery, this entire nation, they've been rescued, they're in the wilderness, and they most likely were living in some form of a tent out there as they traveled, things they could pack up and go as God called them to go to the next place. So they made tents, they made these dwellings, they were places that they could easily uh, use with the, the materials that they had access to as they were traveling through to keep safe from the elements, to get out of the heat at times. And God just looked at his people and said, he wants to dwell among them in a tent of his own. He wants to dwell among his people in a tent of his own. That's what the tabernacle was. 
That's why there's so these specific directions. They've been living in these tents. They've been journeying in these tents. And here, the God that rescued them, the God that split the Red Sea, the God that freed them from hundreds of years of slavery was saying, I now am going to come down and live with you in a tent of my own. And this is exactly how it's going to look. And this is exactly what it's going to be like. And all of the things in that tent are going to have significant meaning to you of how I want to dwell with you. In the way I want to dwell with you. It's just going to be this sacred space. Now, obviously, this doesn't mean that God is somehow contained in this one place. He's God. He's in control of everything. He's the maker of everything. But he says, I, I love you so much, and I want to dwell with you in such a way that I'm going to come down and be with you, present to dwell with you in a tent of my own, just like in a tent that you're living in. But mine's going to look just like this. God in a tent made by human hands, staggering and full of gospel significance. And this is the exact same idea that John and his gospel points us to in John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt among us is the same word as the word tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent among us. God enfleshed in Jesus Christ, the one whom the tabernacle will ultimately point us to is God's dwelling place in the midst of the camp of his people is the Lord Jesus Christ. The true meeting place of God with men whom alone we have access to the Father to. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Exodus 25.8, I am going to dwell in a place among my people. The same God, the same heart. He longs to dwell with his people. Um, he longs to dwell with his people. So that's what Jesus meant when he says things like this. No one comes to the Father but by me. He's saying, I'm the true meeting place. I'm the only meeting place that you can go to to know and meet with God, the living God. You meet God exclusively in Jesus Christ. And the tabernacle, as we read it in Exodus 25, in all of its detail, actually preaches Christ to us. Isn't that beautiful? And additionally, so do all of the articles, so do all of the sacred utensils, so do all of the furniture, so do all of the different pop-up elements that make this tabernacle come out in 3D so that we can see it. They're, they're preaching uh, Christ to us even through the Old Testament, it's to help us grasp the storyline of redeeming grace, a God that longs to dwell with his people and rescue his people and be among his people. So Michael did a great job last week encouraging you to listen about the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. And this morning, we're going to see Christ in these next two articles, these next two pieces that are described in the tabernacle. 
um, in the tent of God, with God dwelling with his people. And the very first one, verses 23 through 29 that I read earlier, is the table for bread. The table for bread. And this is the theme. What God is wanting us to understand is the theme of provision for us as his people. God is a God of provision. Verses 23 through 28, these these detailed instructions are given. He says, make an acacia wood table. It's slightly smaller than the Ark of the Covenant. Likewise, it's to be covered in gold. Also, he says, put these four rings and these poles for lifting. And in verse 29, you notice all these various vessels that are made for the table, flagons and bowls for drink offerings. And then in verse 30, the bread of the presence, it's called, is to be set before God on that tabletop regularly. Now, these images are, help, are, are designed to help us understand the storyline of grace. So the picture in this scene on this golden table with all these various dishes, with a flagon of wine. And we know that from Leviticus 23, verse 13, that apparently this flagon of wine is always kept filled and to be used as a drink offering before the Lord in the tabernacle. You can go back and read uh, Leviticus 23 and 24 if you want to get some more, more intricate details of what these pieces of furniture and tail and more specific, uh, fuller understanding of how they were utilized by the priests. It's wonderful. We don't have time to go into it now, but I'm going to hit a few high levels here. And along with it was the bread of the presence. The bread of the presence. Leviticus 24 tells us the bread of the presence comprised of 12 loaves of bread. One for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Piled on this tabletop, next to the drink offering. And the priests in Leviticus 24, verses 8 and 9, are, go, are to go in to this sacred place once a week, and they are to consume the bread of the presence and replace it on every Sabbath, most likely. It happened on the Sabbath. And the bread of the presence is to remind the priest and to remind the people of God of the provision of God for his people. God's provision for his people. That there is bread, that there is enough for every one of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a way of saying, it's a way of declaring uh, from God to his people that dwells in his midst. That he says, I will supply all of your needs. I will supply all of your needs. You can trust me. And they'd seen that, hadn't they? The Israelites had already seen that. They'd experienced that. So it's, it's, no, it's no coincidence. It's the bread of the presence because that had been their experience. God had saved them. God had provided for them every step of the way. And when they even complained about hunger during their trek through the wilderness, God provided for them manna, bread from heaven. I'll provide for your every need. You will not go hungry. I will care for you. We learned that back in Exodus 16, that they were to gather all the provision that God had rained down in the form of manna, and then twice on Friday so that they'd have enough for the Sabbath day so they could rest and trust that the Lord would provide all that they would need as they journeyed, 
as they followed. I'm near to you. I'm near to you. I'm near to you. And now I want to dwell with you in the bread of the presence as a reminder of the very provision of God for God's people. God supplies all of our needs. Jesus taught the very same promises that's being visually depicted in this picture book right here that we're given of the tabernacle. And I wonder perhaps how many times a week we forget this. If you're anything like me, it's a lot. We're not to live in the grip of worry. We're not to live in the grip of anxiety. We're not to fear what's coming next. Am I going to have enough? Am I going to be provided for? Is God going to take care of me? Does God see me? Does God know my needs? All these things that plague us, all these things that we worry about, these things that bog us down, we're not to worry about those things. Why? Because our Father in heaven knows everything that we need even before we ask him. But rather, the New Testament tells us, we're to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all of these things will be added unto us. He gives us everything that we need. We don't have to be plagued with all the worry and anxieties that so easily consume our every thought if we let them. God supplies our every need. Jesus says we're not to live in the grip of worry. Does worry kind of has a grip on your heart, anyone in here? Jesus teaches us to look with expectation and faith in God to give us this day our daily bread. God, give us this day our daily bread. Same themes, same understanding. Same God, Exodus 25, Jesus reminding us the very same thing. I'll provide your needs every day. Paul would confidently remind the Philippian church that very same thing. In Philippians 4.19, listen to what he says. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul, same thing. The bread of the presence in Exodus 25 is a reminder of the provision of God flowing from his very presence to his people by his grace. And that points us ultimately to our Lord Jesus Christ who gives us those very same promises. In fact, in, um, in John chapter 6, after Jesus miraculously multiplied the fishes and the loaves, do you remember what he says? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. Jesus says about himself, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Friends, there are so many things in life that we can just feel dissatisfied with. Um, and I think it can grip us, this, this hunger that we have, and so often we run to all the wrong places 
to fill that hunger need that we have in us. We could list so many different things that we run to to fill that hunger. They're unable to satisfy. Only the bread of life found in our Lord Jesus Christ can. Otherwise, you're going to keep wandering and you're going to keep searching. It will never quench that hunger. So I think we as God's people need to confess daily, God, you are my daily portion. You are all that I need. Lord, forgive me so often for knowing that spiritual longing that I have and not chasing after and longing after the bread that you promised, but running after all the other things that never satisfy. Isaiah 55 says it this way. Listen to me, eat what is good, delight yourself in rich food, incline your ear and come to me and hear that your soul may live. Jesus is the bread of life. But perhaps, church, you, maybe like I do, oftentimes try to satisfy that hunger that we have through entertainment, through treasures, through wealth, through riches, through work, through even family, through our ambitions, through even good things that we chase after that we want to make ultimate things that said, that will fill me up. And we go headlong and run after so many of those things. Church, only Christ can nourish your soul. Run to him. He's the bread of life. He's the bread of life. Now, secondly, the second thing we're going to look at this morning that we talked about in our text in Exodus 25, verses 31 through 40, is the theme of God's presence. So the table, the bread, is his provision. And the next, we're going to see his presence. And so here we, we, we read in 31 through 40 that God requires this golden lampstand to be built for the tabernacle. It has six branches coming from central stem, making seven all together. And notice how it's decorated in verses 31 through 35. It has a base, it has a stem, it has cups, it has calyxes. It said the word calyx like a hundred times. That's a word we never use. A calyx is essentially these, these leaves that provide a protective wall around the budding flower. It's a protection. It's a protective measure. And then there are flowers and there's flames that are set in the flowers themselves. And the whole thing, each of these, is made like almond blossoms. And it's stylized and it looks like something. And it's beautiful and it's gold and it's reminiscent of Eden. It's reminiscent of Eden where humanity was first expelled from the very presence of God. And he says, build this lampstand in such a way that it represents life and light in my very presence. And he describes it in great detail. He uses the number seven. We could go into a whole thing about that and that, that number all through the Old Testament and the New. And we're told in Leviticus 24 that this lampstand is to provide a constant supply of oil so that it will always be burning. It will never be extinguished. It will never go out. And it is a picture 
this beautiful picture to us, this picture book in 3D of the very presence of God whose light is always illumined and will never go out. The light of God shining forth for his people. Psalm 104, verse 1, God is very great. You are clothed with splendor. We just sang this song in majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. Psalm 118, the Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. 1 John 1.5, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Revelation 22, especially pertinent here. Revelation 22.5, it's the new Jerusalem, it's the heavenly city, it's this temple-like garden, it's like Eden, like the tabernacle. It describes for us this amazing scene. They will need no light, they will need no lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. Isn't that beautiful? And this light shines from God to us most clearly in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, How do I get that? Is is that making a leap here? No, John 1. Just like the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, how, how does he do that? He goes on to tell us just two verses later. John 1, 4, in him, in him, in Christ, this lamp that never goes out and will never be darkened and will always shine forth for God's people. In Christ, in him was the light and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. He can never be extinguished. He will always shine forth and the darkness will never overcome it. John 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Um, Like the tabernacle as a whole, like the ark in the mercy seat we looked at last week, the bread of the presence, so too the lampstand points us to Christ. Now, we live in a dark world. There's darkness all around. I do not have to convince anyone of that fact, I don't believe. Um, we live in a world of moral confusion. We live in a world of riots. We live in a world of injustice abounding around every corner. We live in a world of political chaos. We live in a world of strife, of anger, of, I mean, I could go on and on and on and on. Um, And if you're like me, you're looking for a glimmer of light to sort of pierce the gloom that kind of seems to fall heavy so easily if you let it if you don't pay attention to the light. Well, the light of God, the scripture tells us, has never been extinguished. And the light of life that we so badly need, that we so desperately need to cling to, shines only in Jesus Christ, the light of the world. We can't manufacture it on our own. We can't make it out of our own uh, 
just good efforts and moral trying hard enough to make it happen and then deposit it into us. It's only found outside of ourselves, and it's in the light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. And although the darkness may seem like it's hanging low around us sometimes, the light shines in the darkness through Jesus Christ, and the darkness cannot overcome it. That's good news. That's good news. And so in God's pop-up book, as we've seen, we keep turning these pages and he shows himself in 3D to us. We've seen the great storyline of redemption even in the descriptions of the tabernacle. And it's helped us to see Jesus Christ, him crucified and him risen and reigning for us now for our salvation and for our greatest hope and for our greatest needs. We've seen the the gospel narrative and even all these articles of furniture and what they represent and how they are ultimately find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He's a comprehensive savior for us. In every place we so desperately need him, he shows up. He's the one who meets our needs. He's the one who sustains us. He is able to save us to the uttermost, to all who come to him. He's the only place for us to meet God. He's the true tabernacle. He's the only one to make atonement for our sin that separates us from God. And for us, he is on heaven's mercy seat and he reconciles us back to God through the shedding of his blood. He is the only soul-satisfying, nourishing bread of life that sustains us and is our provision and our daily need every day. And he is the light of the world that goes forth that can pierce the darkness that so easily surrounds us. He's a perfect savior. And we see him even in Exodus 25. And Jesus takes that light that he is and that he shines and the wonderful thing about him and the glorious thing about him is that he actually takes it and he deposits it into you and I. He gives us his light the light that we can't muster up on our own and we can't figure out and we, 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 we can't make it on our own. Our Lord Jesus Christ, our great provider, our great provision, the source of that light now deposits his light into us. Matthew five fourteen, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. They may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The light of God deposited in his people that we might be ambassadors of his goodness and his mercy and his saving grace because of what he has given to us, we get to now go out and go out of these walls and to shine his great light to those around us that need him so desperately that are stuck in the darkness. We can introduce them to the very light that God has given to us through our risen Lord Jesus Christ. Deposits it in us through the very Holy Spirit of God that we get to now walk out and live out the light of life that is now within us. And that they would see the things that we do because of that light. And they wouldn't praise you and I. What does it say? 
they would give glory to our great Father, the giver of light, of life, of salvation, who is in heaven. Um, let's pray together this morning, church, as I invite the praise team back up. Lord, we thank you that you are our provision. Jesus, that you are the bread of life that we need each and every day. God, we want to confess here this morning collectively and ask for forgiveness for so many of us that run after other things that we think will satisfy us but leave us hungry and empty. Lord, may we here this morning collectively run to you to be our sustenance, knowing that your provision is enough for us. Give us this day our daily bread, Lord Jesus. And may we feast on you, whether it is little or a lot. You know the portion for each one in this room. And thank you that you do not hold back those that come that are in need. Lord, fill up those that are in need in this place. And Lord, thank you that you are our great light. The light of your presence. Lord, we'll never go out. You are never in the dark. You are always guide us. Your word, Lord, is a lamp unto our feet. And so, God, I pray that we as your people would constantly look to you, to your word, to show us, to guide us, and to lead us. And, Lord, thank you that you've given to us the very Holy Spirit of God deposited into us that we can now be the light around this communities and families and friends showing them the goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the light of life. Help us be a gospel witness to our friends, to our neighbors, to our children to our co-workers, testifying to you in your good light that you will never be extinguished and that you shine forth even in the darkest places. Lord, I pray for someone in here right now that feels like the darkness of gloom is, is pressing in around them. Lord, would your light shine forth in that very place where they cling to you. They sit with you would they be encouraged by your spirit knowing that your light is never extinguished no matter how dark the night may feel? Be near, God. We love you. We trust you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Church, let's stand.